once I learned that my dogs really needed me to step up, that's actually when I learned how important leadership was and that I had to get my focus off of what they were doing for me and had to begin to put them first and say, okay, this is the way I need to behave and relate to them because they need me to lead, not the other way around. Welcome to the Wear, Wag, Repeat podcast. I'm Tori Mystic. As a dog mom lifestyle expert, blogger, and business owner, I love talking to other women in the pet industry and sharing their advice with you every week. Sit, stay, and listen to the latest episode. This interview with canine behaviorist Sherry Lucas gave me so much to think about when it comes to how I interact with my own dogs. Sherry told me about how she fell in love with animal rescue and ended up with 14 dogs in her own home at one point. Back then, she said that she was the antithesis of a dog trainer. But learning how to lead those dogs and the thousands she's helped rescue since taught her what dogs want from us more than anything else. Do you know what it is? Dogs want us to be leaders. Not only has Sherry developed her own unique methods around this mentality, but she also works with other dog trainers to help them build their confidence and become the leaders they were born to be. It was such a pleasure to get to know Sherry and hear her perspective on the unique and powerful bond between women and our dogs. If you enjoy this conversation as much as I do, please take a screenshot or snap a selfie and share it on Instagram, tagging me at wherewagrepeat. I love to know who's listening, and this way, I can follow you back, too. Sherry Lucas is an internationally recognized canine behavior specialist and speaker. She uses her platform to spread a message of hope to dog owners struggling with behavior issues, such as a lack of socialization, fear, aggression, and separation anxiety. Her methods are unique and effective, encouraging dog owners to unleash their inner leadership abilities. 27 years ago, Sherry founded her No-Kill Shelter Second Chance at Love Humane Society and has rescued, rehabilitated, and rehomed over 5,000 dogs. She is now a living example of the healing power that proper dog leadership provides. Sherry has made numerous appearances on television programs, including National Geographic's Dog Whisperer, Vox Network Germany's Up and Away, the Spanish-language show El Lider de la Manada, National Geographic Wild's Leader of the Pack, and Caesars Recruit Asia, where she served as the creative consultant and dog behaviorist slash trainer. Hey, Sherry. Hey, how are you? I'm doing really good. How are you? I'm very excited to be with you. Me too. And it's so wonderful that through this podcast, I get to talk to people all over the country, even when we are all kind of locked in our houses still. (laughs) (laughs) There's one upside, one silver lining to all this. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So I'd love to just, just dive in and hear about how you got started working with pets, was there a a pet or a dog who first inspired you to go down this path? I think I've always been an animal lover from uh, from the time I was a little girl. So I, my mother used to remind me of all the animals that I would drag home 
<laughs> every day, and you name it, injured birds and, and all kinds of things. So I've always um, had a soft spot for animals. And uh, then there was a dog when I, I grew up in Central America. My father was with Bank of America. So we were um, sent overseas when I was 12. And we um, got a dog there, a little a little puppy named Sammy, a little female. We, her name was actually Samantha, uh, but we called her Sammy. And she was absolutely remarkable, a little mutt that I fell in love with. And she's really kind of what started the whole thing. And so did you first get into dog training? I know that you also have um, the rescue that you do, which came first? Oh my gosh. I was anything but a dog trainer. Um, in my (laughs) early years, in fact, I was probably the antithesis of a dog trainer. Um, I didn't really know anything about what was important to a dog, um, how to fulfill a dog. I knew nothing. All I knew how to do was save them, love them. And, um, and more of the same, save and love, save and love. That was really kind of all I knew how to do. So you started rescuing dogs and um, and ended up growing it into an entire nonprofit, right? I mean, overseas, you know, we I saw a lot of a lot of stray dogs because that's kind of what you see in in third world countries, and so I, I always felt very you know very badly for these dogs that didn't have homes, um, although they they appeared to be very very balanced and very um, sustain themselves pretty, pretty well, considering that they didn't have owners on the same way that we have in most of our Western cultures where dogs are basically babied and pampered and given everything that they supposedly need. Um, well, there's a few ingredients left out of that, but yeah, I, I definitely got my start there. And then when I moved, um, back to the States and I saw there was such a huge need in certain areas of the country in particular, where there were stray dogs everywhere and dogs given up, and um, back in the day, the, the kill shelters were really, really high kill everywhere. There was just not enough homes and not enough spay and neuter back in those days. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. You know, we think of, um, we often think of America's, um, you know, pet parents and you treat your dog as a member of the family. But there are certainly areas of our country where um, your pet isn't treated how you and I would treat our pets. Um, so you know, it, it's very interesting to see what a what a variety of attitudes towards pets there are, even within our own country. Mm, that's definitely true. Um, it, and there's actually, maybe we'll get into this today, but there is there are actually some definite benefits of of dogs that aren't pampered that are that are basically know their know their place and they're not treated like children because the reality is they're not children. They're a different species altogether than than you know than us, and it's. There's a part of them being treated as children, which is really, really unfair. <laughs> it's the same way that we don't want to be treated as dogs or as any other animal that we're not. We want to be treated as humans and w- men and women, but dogs are so treat you know treated so often like children that there's a definite downside to that as well. That's a very interesting perspective. Um, so one one of the questions I wanted to ask you today is what what do you think as um, an animal behaviorist that dogs want from us? more than anything else. Leadership, without a doubt. They want leadership. They are, by nature, pack animals in their natural world. That's who they are. Um, you and I are, are pack-oriented animals. We, you know, each, each of us has a specific way that we live with other humans. Even if you live alone, you still have interactions with other humans. We have, if we have children or in-laws or whatever living with us, then we have a more extended family. But the bottom line is you and I can get up and go where we want to go and make decisions on our own. We don't have to rely on someone else to tell us 
how things are or which way how we should behave and so on and so forth. But dogs, on the other hand, um, because they're pack animals, the very definition of a pack, of course, is is a number of animals with a leader. Um, And so they definitely thrive. They don't just want leadership. They absolutely thrive on leadership and structure because in their natural world, if they don't have that, they're not going to survive as a pack. You know, it's so funny. Um, you just talking about having a pack and a pack leader. I was just on vacation last week with my family and my little nephew, who's four years old. He wants to read the same book like 17 times in a row. And he has a book that's about wolves. And I read this wolf book like 17 times last week. And in it, it's like wolves live in a pack. Wolves have the alpha male. The alpha male eats or the alpha dog eats first before all the other dogs. You know, they do really like that structure. And so it's interesting that like a children's book would teach this. um, And then we grow into adults and kind of forget about it. Absolutely. And that's the whole that's the whole thing is that we do forget about it or we just don't know in the beginning because we're so that's just sort of how we're raised in western cultures is that these dogs are just humanized all of our pets are basically humanized and we refer to them as our fur babies we have different things that we you know that we call them and we let them pretty much take over thinking that that is sort of a a, a way for us to love them is let them sort of do whatever they want to do without stopping to think that that is really not what they want. They want structure. They want guidance. And just as you said, the the book that your your nephew was reading, you know, dogs dogs and wolves or any other animal, they don't really care what position they're in as long as they know what it is and it's consistent. So whether they're the quote unquote alpha in a pack or whether they're a subordinate pack member, as long as they know their role, they're happy uh, because they've they've got structure and they know which way they're going. When they don't have leadership. Then, or they're in a in a home, for example, and because of the way the the people in the home are relating to the dog, the dog thinks, well, I guess there doesn't appear to be any leadership here, <laughs> so therefore that position of leadership is going to default to me because somebody has to lead, and uh, that's intrinsically unfair to the dog for to ask a dog to actually be in a position of leadership in a family home unless they can pay the mortgage and take your kids to school. <laughs> well, let's train them to do that. <laughs> Um, in your bio, you talked about the healing power that proper dog leadership provides. Can you share a story about, you know, how you've seen this kind of healing happen? Yeah, I, the, the, this is going to, this is not across the board, of course, but obviously I, I've dealt with thousands of people over the students and clients over the last 21 years that I've been involved in dog training and 35 that I've been involved in dog rescue. I just consistently see a pattern where um, we as humans will use a dog to fill something in us that um, that we can only fulfill ourselves. Some sort of an emotional void sometimes, um, some sort of trauma that we've been through, and we, um, we basically we're ref- we refer to our dogs in a sense, even if we don't call them that, as sort of li- sort of an emotional support animal, um, in the sense that they're taking uh, they're taking over a, a space in our lives that we have not been able to fill fulfill ourselves or have other people fulfill. And so when when I got my first pack when I you know first started doing rescue and I actually was keeping a vast majority of the dogs myself and I had about 14 or 15 personal dogs in my home but I had no idea how to control them um, I realized that a lot of uh, the way I was relating to them had to do with an emotional um, void in my own life and um, once I learned that my dogs really needed me to step up 
that's that's actually when I learned how important leadership was and that I had to get my focus off of what they were doing for me and had to begin to put them first and say, okay, this is the way I need to behave and relate to them because they need me to lead, not the other way around. They can't. You can't have an, an animal um, that, who, that you've domesticated come in and take over a family household and tell you how it's going to be. Otherwise, you're going to have a horrible problem on your hands. Yeah, well, you're right. It just it doesn't really make sense. And I think that it is too much of a burden. Um, when when I hear you explain it, it's too much of a burden to put on your dog to expect them to, you know, cater to your every emotional need, plus be the leader and the alpha and all it's too much on your dog, it sounds like. Well, and it creates a lot of separation anxiety, like the two main things that it creates in dogs is separation anxiety and overprotectiveness. Because what the, what you're signaling to the dog inadvertently, of course, no one would ever do this to their dog deliberately. But when you don't step up, what you're signaling to the dog is that you need them to go forward. So for example, if you're walking down the street with your dog on a leash, and you've basically positioned yourself as the fo- as the, the follower and your dog is the leader, um, then the dog is going to basically say to you, okay, hold on, there's a human and another dog walking towards us. Don't worry, I've got this. Just stay back there. I'll take care of it. And then you get the lunging and the coming up off the front feet and that type of thing. And the you know, losing their minds when they see another dog or another person. And the human's like, wow, what happened here? But it's actually, the dog is actually doing his duty from his own perspective. He's like, well, I, you don't step up at home. So therefore, I thought you needed me to do mm. this. That's one way that it can manifest. Um, another way would be separation anxiety where the dog feels like the owner can't be, isn't okay without them. Um, and so they start following them around the home. They, you know, they sleep with them. They follow them into their intimate spaces like their bathroom and they get into bed with them and they're sharing all of that with them. And the owner finds it very comforting and as, and thinks of it as though the dog is loving them. But in reality, the dog is afraid that the human can't be alone. It, it's actually the other way around. And then when they are separated, <clears throat> the dog has a really, really tough time with it. So it's almost like, you know, with separation anxiety, maybe the dog isn't afraid of being alone. The dog is worried about what's going to happen to you when they're not with you. That's amazing that you said it that way because that's exactly right. And you <laughs> I never thought of it that way before. Yeah, that's really amazing. I don't think in all these years that I've had anyone that's that it's what I just said has resonated with them more than what you just said. Most people you have to kind of explain it over and over, but that's, <laughs> that's exactly well, what it is. I live eat and sleep dogs all the time, so <laughs> Yeah, no, that you are exactly right. That that is what it is. And again, it's something that we don't do deliberately, but um, we're not aware of how we set these dogs up to fail, in essence, because we don't position ourselves as the authority, um, which seems to have sort of a negative connotation to a lot of people. It's like a dirty word when in reality is that's what they crave that that's what this whole the beginning of this question was what's the most important thing to a dog and that is it is that is the biggest gift you can give your dog is is, a, is to become a leader so that they have someone that they can follow and, and know what their position is. Are you searching for a way to earn extra income in your pet business and expand your reach with really cool branded products? I bet you'd love to have an online store, but do you have the space to store inventory or extra time to ship products out to your customers? Me neither. That's why I'm obsessed with on-demand products. Print-on-demand technology gives you a way to boost your income and brand awareness with a zero-inventory online store full of high-quality products. In my new masterclass, Launch an On-Demand Online Store for Pet Lovers, 
you'll save a ton of time by learning how I set up my own on-demand products like shirts, mugs, tote bags, and more. I'll let you in on the mistakes I made so you don't make them. And I'll explain the strategies I use to sell hundreds of on-demand products in the Wear, Wag, Repeat shop. Want to check it out and get a jump start creating on-demand products that your customers will be begging to buy? Head over to wearwagrepeat.com slash courses and click on the on-demand online store masterclass. Enrollment is open now at wearwagrepeat.com slash courses. Yeah. And so would you recommend that people maybe have like more boundaries with their dogs and what they allow their dogs to do around the home? Yeah. I mean, it has to be a comprehensive plan. It really has to be something from the from the foundation up. Um, if you've already got a situation at home, which of course, when my clients come to me, they're obviously not coming to me because their dogs are perfectly behaved. They've already got an issue. But when you, um, when you, you, you can't um, kind of like spot fix things in, in, in a dog's life, you have to really take a, comp- a comprehensive approach to it and start by uh, recreating the relationship, basically undoing the previous reputation you have with your dog and creating a new one. Because the most important thing is, is your dog's perspective of who you are in the pack, not what you think you are. If you think, well, I provide everything. I give him the walks. I pet him. I feed him. I take him to the vet. I do all this. The dog doesn't see it that way. They just see how you interact with them, whether you you allow them to rush through the door first, whether they, they can come up and put a, a slobbery ball in your lap and that's your signal to get up and play ball. Let's do it now, you know, on their terms. Everything is on their terms. And and they, without what we do is we don't understand that we're signaling to the dog right then and there that, okay, basically uh, you own this house and this life and I get to live here. That's basically what you're saying to the dog. And so you have to start back there. It's not just that one day you can say, okay, here's a boundary. You have to go back before that even. And And I mean, boundary is definitely part of it. But you want to be able, you want to signal to the dog by basically giving affection when the dog earns affection, things like that, making them wait for their food, um, not allowing them to go through thresholds before you. Um, those are boundaries, exactly what you said, not being allowed to be in intimate spaces with you. And of course, <clears throat> these are all things that you're going to do um, to, to set the whole relationship into a different place. Yeah. And it's it sounds like it's gradual and it's a bunch of little pieces that fit together. It's not like... You can do one thing. You can't, no, not just one thing, but they all go hand in hand. And if you do it right, um, it's not so much about creating these formal sessions where you go, you have to go out and, and let's say train your dog for hours every day or, okay, well, it's five o'clock. I guess I have to go do the third session of the day. It's more of a lifestyle where things just become second nature to you. Um, for, for example, when a client came over yesterday to drop, I have a German shorter pointer that I just got in for a, a three week board and train. And when I took the dog from her and we started to go back into the, into my office where I, I kennel the dogs that I'm training, um, the dog tried to rush through the gate before me and I don't even stop and think about it. I just make the dog wait. I get, you know, I ask for some eye contact. I ask for some space and then I invite the dog through that whole that was a training session right there. That was the first training session, but I don't think of it that way. Um, and it probably took 
uh, seven or eight seconds longer than if I had just let her push through the gate first. But I had right then and there, I made an imprint on that dog that I'll be leading you while you're here and you'll be following me. Otherwise, how on earth could I possibly persuade that dog to behave any differently than she was already behaving if I didn't position myself in that place right off the bat? Yeah, that is so interesting. And it's just, it's just those like little, little shifts that can kind of accumulate and make a big difference. Um, one of the things that I noticed that you do is, um, you also work with other trainers and other women who are passionate about their dogs. You actually have two different retreats that you offer. One is train the trainer and the other is the wellness unleashed weekend. I'd love to hear about both of them, but maybe first you can talk about the train the trainer program. That that's a program, um, that's basically about people, trainers that, that are either want to be trainers or people that are like in some kind of dog industry. They're groomers or they're dog walkers or they're pet sitters. Um, most of them are, are trainers that are either just beginning or some in some cases they've been training for years and years, but there's just something that's missing or some other place that they want to go with their training. Maybe they've been doing strictly obedience training, which is sit, stay, come, and they want to do more behavior training where they're actually addressing psychological issues. They're dealing with dogs that maybe have um, aggression or reactivity or separation anxiety, the different things like that. So that's the group that is drawn to the train the trainers program. Um, and, and it's basically people that want to come and find out what my model is, um, uh, how I do what I do, how I start every day, how I put a, a pack of dogs together um, how I work with dogs individually, how I assess cases, uh, even my business model of how I work with clients, what type of programs do I have for clients, that type of thing. So it's it's really geared for, and it's something that was sort of an organic thing that happened. I remember the very first time many years ago that someone called me and said, I'm a new trainer and I would love to mentor um, under you. And I was like, oh, I don't do that. And and she said, well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, well, I don't know, maybe it's something that I should do. And then as the years went by, I saw more and more of a demand for it, um, where people wanted to train in that same way. So that's what that program is all about. Well, and I think it's also really nice to have like a, a small group, um, which I, I think you do like a small group for that um, retreat, instead of doing like one on one mentoring, it's nice to kind of like have a little community of people who are in it together. It actually works better that way because it's funny that you should say that because I used to do one-on-one -on -one training, but what I would find is that, first of all, I would just mentally fry my students because uh, working you know, an eight-hour day for a lot of people is just debilitating and, and, and there's only so much you can absorb knowledge-wise in a, in a short period of – in that period of time. You need to process things. You need to have an opportunity for latent learning. And also, the dogs can't really tolerate it. <clears throat> so if a dog is – let's say a student brings their own dog or I assign a dog to them while they're here, there's only so much you can work one dog during the day. And so what I've found is, yeah, it's just like you said, if you have multiple trainers here, it's still very small. It's about eight people altogether. But that way, the different trainers get to see what each trainer is doing and they get to, to have a variety of cases as opposed to just one that they're working with. Um, and nobody gets fried. <laughs> Yeah. So they spend like a lot of time watching others and they spend a little bit of time doing themselves, which is nice. Yeah. And, and what I like to do is if someone brings a dog, then I like to have everyone handle that dog, at least for a, a period of time. Um, so it does work out better. At first I thought, oh, I don't know if this is going to fly. And then the more I do it with multiple people, the more I realize that it's really a much better model than doing them one-on-one. -on -one. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just keeps things fresher. 
And the other group program that you offer that's kind of like a, a getaway immersive retreat kind of experience is the Wellness Unleashed Weekend. And that, tell us a little bit about that. That's for just like regular dog parents or dog moms, I guess you could say, um, who who want to kind of build a deeper bond with their dogs. But there's also a lot of other things involved. So t- tell us about that. Wow, that this is a really heavy um, course <laughs> for me. And this is kind of my heart course. And it's something that another thing that sort of developed organically. Um, I spent um, two decades with an eating disorder and chronic depression. Um, it's been a long time. I, it was something that I was able to resolve over many, many years when I was in my 40s. I'm 66 now. Um, so I've been um, on, a, on a very different path for a long time now. But what I found was that it, my dogs really, really taught me a lot about myself. Um, and I really had to learn how to step up for them because they, they requ- just as we were talking earlier, they, they require leadership. And what I found, again, going back to how, you know, we, we use our dogs sometimes to fulfill our emotional needs. What I discovered was that once I realized the importance and my responsibility to step up for my dogs, that's when my own healing started. Um, and then as I began to do more and more work with other clients, um, I have a way larger demographic of women who follow me um, than I do men. And um, think, I thought, well, what is, I wonder what the reason is for that. And then I realized um, how much women rely on their dogs to help them through things, once in, which is what we've already discussed. And I realized that it, when a woman's psyche is healthy, when a woman l- understands how to um, shift the way she thinks and how she, especially how she feels about herself, it makes such a dramatic difference in her relationship with her dog. Um, It's just huge. It's just mind blowing the difference that it makes when, even if you can get a a, a woman to stand up straight and just envision something different, like I've had women up here that basically say, well, I know my dog is going to get reactive when they see another dog on leash when we're walking. And, and, and that's the picture I have when I walk out the door and I, and I, teach them how they can shift that thinking and reframe it and envision a different result when they go out. And you can see them just put their shoulders back and hold their head up and touch the leash of their dog right then and there and start walking. And the dog just goes, you could just see their anxiety level and everything just go down. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. It's not something that I created. It's just the nature of the dog they are not as evolved as a species than we are. And so they pick up on our cues, the way we hold our bodies, um, the tone of our voice. They pick up on those things. And those are the things that tell us whether we're afraid or confident. So if you can instill confidence in women, if you can help them begin to feel, to heal some of those areas of their lives that are broken, it's going to make such a dramatic difference in their relationship with their dog. It's unbelievable. This just sounds like such an amazing program. So, so people can bring their own dogs with them, or they can use one of the dogs that you have on the property. Um, and it's it's more than just like a weekend with your dog, or it's not really even just a dog training weekend. It is really like a mindset shift, and you do a lot of um, personal development work. It sounds like absolutely. And I've even had women come without dogs, not very often, but but many of them do. Some of them just really, really want to focus on themselves. Um, the, 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 again, the dogs are a catalyst that, that would be what I would say more than anything. They're a catalyst for change because so many people, uh, women especially feel badly about what's going on with their dogs without realizing, um, you know, that they can actually change 
change the dynamics just by changing the way they feel about themselves. And I do believe strongly, I basically inhale everything I can inhale <laughs> about how the brain works, how the mind works. And I and I do know that over the, this is not, again, this is the, these are things that I have read and, and really studied over the last many years, is that the brain is just like, it's a muscle, it, basically, it can be, it could be trained, it can be changed. They, we used to believe that the brain was static, that it really couldn't be it was sort of like hard plastic, and it really couldn't be changed after you were a certain age, usually very young at 25 or 30 at the very most. But now scientists and neuroscientists have figured out that you can actually train, you can create new neural pathways in your brain. And so you can learn how to envision different things, different results with your dogs. You can learn to see yourself in a, in a different way. And it's just, it's so incredibly healing. And, um, you know, just to learn how to stop negative self-talk, things like that. There's an awful lot of self-help stuff out there on the market, as we all know right now. Um, but this is sort of my little niche of of just basically bringing your dog and and just you can you can see the results so quickly in the dog that you know something is changing within yourself i guess that would be the biggest thing that's interesting yeah and i think that like i've seen um just in working with my own two dogs when i'm teaching them a new trick or something and i can see like the light turn on above their head you can like see the wheels turning in their brain sometimes when something just clicks for them and I, that's just like interesting to look at it as kind of like a mirror of like if their brain can learn new things, you know, I can teach my senior dog a new thing and I can see their brain changing in front of me, then like my brain could change too. Right, exactly. And it's it's cool, just like you said about your own dogs, it's really cool to watch dogs because um, as I said, they're not as evolved as a species as we are. They're, they're, they're pretty simple in the end. And so it's, 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 funny how little you really have to do to elicit a, a huge change in a dog because they don't bring stories to the table the way you and I would or other people would. Um, we always have our reasons for why we're the way we are. Well, I don't feel good about myself because, <laughs> you know, my dad didn't come to my soccer games when I was a kid or I'm just making stuff up. But uh, yeah. you, you kind of under, you know, know what I mean. And we go to the grave with these stories. You know, they're a wound that we've had as a child and we've all had them and we get we were wounded as adults and some of it's self-inflicted and some of it is inflicted by just living in the world. But we keep those stories and that that's what help what keeps us stuck. Whereas dogs, they're just like so in the moment that if we give them a different set of rules and we div give them, um, as you were saying, you know, a different kind of structure and and boundaries uh, though we just see them letting go of stuff and going oh okay well if uh, you why didn't you just say so now okay so these are my boundaries and these are the rules and they don't they don't bring stories with them well you didn't make the other dog do that how come i have to do it they don't do that they just shift mm -hmm. and so we can learn a lot from watching dogs and seeing how much they want to let go of things if we just give them the right the the right set of tools to get there I think that um, as you were talking, it just made me think of a couple of dogs I know who lost a leg when they once they were like an adult dog, they got hit by a car or like an accident, who knows, whatever. But um, they became a three-legged dog as an adult. And the owners for years are 
tormented by this and they feel terrible and they hang on to so much baggage. Meanwhile, the dog is running, they are playing, they are doing whatever they want to do. They're not bothered by this whatsoever. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's so interesting. You know, I, I know a couple of dogs like that and I think that the people are way more tormented by it. The dog doesn't really even, they're over it. They don't care anymore. Right. No, exactly. Because we had a case years and years ago where one of my dogs was probably 14 and just didn't feel well one day. And, and, you know, that, that evening I had to put her down. We did some x-rays and found that, that she had, um, uh, a tumor on her spleen and it, it had started to bleed out. And, you know, I'm, I was so glad that I didn't know that. I didn't know that up until that day because I would have related to her differently. She had the most amazing life. She never lost her appetite. She never, she wanted to walk no matter what, no matter how far she could get. She didn't feel sorry for herself. Um, you know, but if she, if I'd known it, I would have probably reduced her exercise and I would have not let her play as hard. And I would have, um, you know, I would have made all these changes in the way I related to her and it would have probably freaked her out. Whereas yeah. I just let her live out her life. She didn't feel bad for what she was going through and she wasn't even symptomatic until the tumor opened and, and bled out, which is just, just the way that that type of thing works. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. A lot to be said for that. And dogs, they do adjust really, really quickly. I've even known of dogs that have lost both their front legs, small dogs that can still function. And it's incredible to watch because, you know, when we, when little things happen to us and it just it destroys us, we, you have to look at dogs and go, okay, well, it can't be that bad. <laughs> because look at yeah. what, dogs, what dogs go through and they're still, you know, basically living their life at, to the fullest. I think about those dogs all the time and it, it's like, yeah, don't feel whatever your problem is today that like your hair doesn't look right. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Um, just think about those dogs who just keep on living their best life, regardless of what happens. Yeah. So. And when you're in rescue, of course, you see so much of that because you see dogs um, that have gone through so much and, and they, they, they go into a new home and they're just like, all I care about is that I'm here right now. They're not stuck in the past. And, and I'll get clients a lot that will bring dogs up. And this is so common where I'll say, tell me about your dog. And the first thing they tell me is the story that comes with the dog. Well, we think she was abused when she was a puppy and she was at the pound for, you know, six months or whatever. And, and that's how they start telling me about their dog. And I know right then and there that these people want to hold on to that to a certain extent. It's a strange it's a strange thing. And I can't say that I didn't do it myself at one point because I did. Um, but, but the dog's gotten over it. You know, the dog is just ready to move forward. And sometimes the owner doesn't want to let them. And, and, and so then once again, they approach their dog in a soft way um, without leading because they feel bad. They want to somehow make up for the fact that the dog spent six months at a shelter or was previously abused or neglected when the dog is already gone. It's already past that. Um, and it doesn't want to stay stuck anymore. Right. I, that's such an important message. And thank you for sharing that. Um, cause I think a lot of people don't, um, don't talk about our dogs in this way, you know, just very matter of factly. I, I really like your approach a lot. Um, Sherry, tell us, uh, I hate to cut off our conversation cause I enjoy talking to you so much, but unfortunately the episode has to end. So tell everyone where they can find you online to keep in touch. Um, my website is sherrywolflucas.com. Um, and so you have the links to that. I won't spell it out, but, um, that, that's where my uh, website is. And also I'm very active on social media, um, probably more on Instagram than anything else where I have more fresh video content. I also have a YouTube channel with over a hundred, um, training videos. 
Um, and uh, you can find me on Facebook and I do a little, I dabble with Twitter, <laughs> not a lot, but I do some things on Twitter as well, but, um, I will be creating, um, a subscription based service of, of dog training very soon where you can subscribe to my, that, you know, that's a platform that we're working on building right now. And, um, you'll be able to subscribe to that service and I'll be creating on a very regular basis, video content addressing everybody's personal issues. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to checking that out. Um, thank you again so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it very much. What did you like most about this episode? Find me on Instagram at teamistic and let me know what intrigued you or what questions you have about starting or growing your own dog inspired business. You can also screenshot this episode and tag me in your stories. I love to see who is listening out there. Some of the best conversations happen after the episode, right? So track me down over on Instagram or join the Wear, Wag, Repeat Labs Facebook group to connect with other dog-obsessed entrepreneurs. And as always, you can find all the links and resources discussed in this episode at wearwagrepeat.com slash podcast. See you back here next week.